Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from John Popel on Mary Magdalene, first among apostles. There are more debates about Mary Magdalene than any other New Testament woman, almost undoubtedly because she developed a close personal relationship with Jesus, which prompts salacious rumors and bizarre theories to flourish. A speculation long growing in popularity is that Mary Magdalene and Jesus married and bore children. It's not taken seriously in academia, but the idea gained viral traction through the popular conspiracy novel The Da Vinci Code, which sold about 80 million copies. The book was fiction, the author made no secret of it, yet many took it as fact. The Bible is definitive that Jesus did not father children, although few are aware of the proof. It's in Isaiah. Quote, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. No man is cut off from the land of the living if he has sons and daughters living after he has departed, and thus Isaiah definitively resolves the question of whether Jesus has a genealogy. He does not. Mary Magdalene is not mother to a neo-divine lineage, but she is far more preeminent than many Christian denominations notice or permit. Mary's story. We can't learn anything about Mary Magdalene until we know exactly which stories belong to her and which don't. This is a lengthy exercise, which we distill to a bonus material article on this website. We find that Mary Magdalene and Mary, who is sister of Martha and Lazarus, can, from biblical evidence, be confidently shown to be the same person. With that established, we are well placed to hear her story. It is as powerful as it is poignant. Mary is from Bethany, sister to Martha and Lazarus. Bethany is a poor village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, whose name translates as House of Misery or House of Poverty. Simon the leper lives there, see Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, which is logical. A leper was likely shunned from more opulent communities. We conclude Mary and her family were poor. Luke reveals Mary was a, quote, sinner, Luke chapter 7, verse 37. The term is so generic, we'll never be sure of its precise meaning, but given that it causes Simon the Pharisee to recoil at the idea of her touching Jesus, and opportunities for poor women in that society were extremely limited, it's reasonable to conclude, without being derogatory, that it refers to prostitution. Mary's prostitution provides a natural solution to the geographical conundrum of whether she hails from Bethany or Magdala. Prostitution requires anonymity. One can't practice it in one's home village. Mary needs to move from Bethany to another place, ideally a rich place with a transient population. Magdala is a rich port on the Galilean shore, renowned for both wealth and corruption, making it ideal. It's here that Mary makes money. That's how Mary of Bethany was poor, and yet is the same person as Mary of Magdala, who was rich enough to support Jesus' ministry. In fact, Magdala is likely the place where Mary acquired the alabaster jar of precious ointment. Luke makes clear the ointment belongs to Bethany's Mary alone, Luke chapter 7, verse 37. It was not a family heirloom. 
and this is the Mary who was dirt poor. This will offend some sensibilities, yet there is no more logical explanation than Mary's time in Magdala to explain how she acquired a vial of ointment which cost a year's wages. The hand of God is with Mary because Magdala is in Galilee, where Jesus is about to reveal the wonders of his ministry. And this is undoubtedly where Jesus first encountered Mary. Her life is transformed by meeting God's Son, changed irrevocably and forever. Real transformation provokes action, and Mary mobilizes herself to form a cadre of similarly impassioned women to support Jesus, to support him emotionally, spiritually, logistically, and financially. As Jesus moves to Jerusalem to preach in his father's chosen city, the women accompany him. This explains why, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he immediately finds accommodation arranged for him in Bethany. Quote, and leaving them, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Matthew 21, verse 17. This verse seems meaningless alone. What value could there be in knowing Jesus left the Jerusalem synagogue and went to Bethany? The answer, it's another clue solving that Mary Magdalene is Mary of Bethany. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he immediately found accommodation in Bethany because it's Mary Magdalene's family home. She's organized this. She that has ears to hear. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his teaching and hears it. It's a tragic indictment of humanity that she's unique. Consider the comparison between how Mary received Jesus' words and how the twelve apostles received them. Here's how the twelve listened. Quote, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. Peter typifies the response of the twelve. He listens to Jesus' message about his death, but he can only hear this message within his preconceived worldview. Peter knows that he, Peter, is loyal and fearless. So all he hears is that Jesus' life is in danger, and he interprets that as Jesus being in need of a brave, loyal protector. And that's him. Peter understands the threat on Jesus' life only in terms of a human assault which can be thwarted by his bravery and physicality. Jesus upbraids Peter for failing to listen, failing to make the necessary gear shift from mortal thinking to hearing the spiritual truth. Compare this with how Mary listens. Quote, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Mary listens, understands, learns, and is impacted enough to respond with loving action from her emotional resonance and deep spiritual understanding. This forms the foundation of Mary as the premier disciple. It has nothing to do with her being Jesus' favorite or his girlfriend, whatever emotional attachments they may have shared. She has ears to hear, and she uses them. This is her preeminence. Why Jesus Wept When the tragedy of Lazarus' death strikes Mary's family, both sisters look to Jesus for counsel and comfort. Both testify his presence could have prevented the death. It's here we encounter the famous Bible verse, Jesus wept. Jesus did weep, and Mary is the reason why. But this isn't obvious without careful reading. Quote, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. John chapter 11, verses 35 to 36. If we read carelessly, we'd believe Jesus wept because he loved Lazarus. But the gospel doesn't say that. It says the Jews thought Jesus wept because of Lazarus. The Bible shows that the Jews' prediction as to what Jesus does or says is usually always wrong. Consider, Jesus knew Lazarus was dead before returning to Bethany. He told his disciples that, obliquely via the metaphor of falling asleep, and this did not cause him to cry. The twelve men, typically, weren't really listening and didn't understand the metaphor. So Jesus told them directly, Lazarus is dead, John chapter 11, verse 14. That didn't cause him to cry either. Days later, he returns to Bethany, experiencing the same sights, sounds, and smells that he had shared with Lazarus, and still he didn't cry. He meets Lazarus' sister, Martha. They discuss his death and the hope of resurrection. Still, he doesn't weep. Then, he meets Mary. In fact, he calls for her, John chapter 11, verse 28, which is unprecedented. Quote, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus wept. John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. This is the critical context. Jesus wept when he saw Mary's pain. Seeing Mary heartbroken, with the depth of grief that isn't ever fully mollified, even by knowledge of the resurrection, caused his tears. Jesus wept not because he loved Lazarus, as the Jews wrongly supposed, but because he loved Mary. The anointing. There are three accounts of this event in Matthew 26, Luke 7, and John 12. Some believe that Luke's gospel describes a separate event, which we will not address in depth. The many parallels between all three accounts aptly demonstrate this idea is not credible. The similarities prove that the three gospels tell the same story. The unique details from each gospel aid us to learn more of Mary's story. The anointing takes place in Bethany, and, since Simon issues the invites, it's logically at his house. Yet, since Martha is serving, 
it's logically her house too, given that we have independent evidence from Luke 10 that she serves in her home. Luke also implies Mary lives elsewhere, Luke chapter 7, verse 37, so this isn't the family home of Mary and Martha. The solution which fits all the evidence is that Simon and Martha are married, and this is their house. Simon the Pharisee may have qualified to live in the more upmarket parts of the capital, but he is also a leper, and thus he and Martha remain in the house of the poor, Bethany. The dinner is Martha's heartfelt effort to honor Jesus for the resurrection of her brother Lazarus, which resolves another issue. Simon disapproves of Mary and doesn't want her there, but a celebration of Lazarus's resurrection demands both sisters be invited. Luke keeps the tension alive. Simon is truly uncomfortable that Mary is there and disturbed that this alleged super-rabbi, Jesus, does not seem discerning enough to dismiss her. Simon is a leper and may have been cruelly ostracized himself, so we might expect him to be sympathetic to others that society self-righteously rejects. But he fails, falling back on pharisaical superiority. Most importantly, Mary is a guest, not a resident. So how does she have her ointment with her to anoint Jesus? Only one answer is possible. She's planned this. Her anointing wasn't just an emotional response triggered in the moment. As much as Martha planned the dinner, Mary planned the anointing. It's a quiet detail, but a powerful one. This is an uncensored outpouring of Mary's love for Jesus and her reflection of God's grace. Carl Ricci elegantly says that Mary, quote, welcomed Jesus in a deeper sense, end quote, than Martha. The disciples react in poor spirit to Mary's dedication. They pretend it's the wasted cost of the ointment which troubles them. But we know Judas complained because he was a thief and planned to sell the ointment and embezzle the takings. The other eleven may have complained because Mary's intimate dedication placed her closer to the Lord than any of them had ever been. Jesus rebukes them, explaining that Mary has excelled and thereby earned an eternal place in history. The misogynistic trigger. This anointing may be even more significant. It may be the event which triggered Judas to betray Jesus. We know Judas had decided to betray Jesus before the Last Supper, John chapter 13, verse 2. And we see his frustration at Mary expending the ointment on Jesus because he lost a chance to steal. He lashes out at Mary, criticizing her waste. This is, in the American vernacular, a cheap shot because women had less of a voice in that society, so publicly scorning a woman was an easy put-down. Judas can expect others to support him, perhaps even pile on against Mary. Yet what does Jesus do? Jesus publicly rebukes Judas and praises Mary. Quote, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Matthew 26, verses 10 through 13. This is total humiliation for Judas. Rebuked by the master in favor of a lowly woman, 
a woman with a salacious history at that. Judah's pride is damaged, and, notably, pride is one of the truest of deadly sins from Proverbs chapter 6. It's this sin of pride which may well account for what happens next. Quote, Then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Matthew 26, verses 14 and 15. It's dangerous to insist on a linear chronology in the Gospels. But if this sequence is connected, then Mary's heartfelt outpouring of love in anointing Jesus for burial forms the actual catalyst for Judas's decision to betray Jesus. Jesus' support of women, his refusal to see them demeaned by evil-spirited men, is not only countercultural, but may have been the trigger for his betrayal. At the tomb, vigil, revelation, ordination. All four Gospels record the crucifixion and the visits to Jesus' tomb. Creating a single, coherent storyline of the tomb visits from the Gospels is not simple, and any proposal remains subject to uncertainty. I suggest a timeline here of four events. Event 1, Crucifixion. Attending, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary wife of Cleopas, the mother of James and John, John, Salome, others. Mary is one of the brave handful attending. We shouldn't overlook how dangerous this was. Romans and Jews together were baying for Jesus' blood. The chant, crucify him, crucify him, psychologically fed the mob frenzy. To stand in support of Jesus was literally a life-threatening gamble, probably even more so for a woman. Yet Mary Magdalene is there. Event 2. Burial. Attending, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. The two men coordinate sealing this tomb with an enormous stone and then retire. The two women, Mary and Mary, remain. Event 3. The first tomb visit. Attending, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, Joanna, others. They arrive at dawn on Sunday, finding the tomb empty. They return bemused. Mary tells Peter and John. Event 4, the second tomb visit. Attending, Mary Magdalene, Peter, John. Peter and John run to the tomb. Mary follows. She is at the tomb before Peter and John leave. John chapter 20, verses 10 and 11. One fact springs out. Mary Magdalene is the only person present at all four events. She is also always named first in the list of attendees, which itself implies a seniority. She refuses to be separated from her Lord in life or death. Resurrected Revelation Mary is the only one to whom the immortal Jesus first reveals himself, an unparalleled honor. Only a few minutes earlier, Peter, John, and Mary were all at the tomb. And logically, this seems the perfect time for Jesus to reveal himself, because a trio of witnesses can corroborate each other's testimony to others. But this is not what the Lord chooses. He waits, unseen in the background, until the two men leave. The honor of revelation was reserved for Mary alone. 
Why was Mary elevated above all others? Because she was the only one who listened wholeheartedly to Jesus. Martha had concerned herself with logistics, and the twelve apostles could only hear the words of Jesus within the paradigms of what they already believed, which triggered one misunderstanding after another. But Mary was eternally present with Jesus. She is the one who remains when others leave. It's mentioned three times, which suggests to the observant reader that it matters. Here are the three quotes. Quote, Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Matthew 27, verses 60 and 61. Quote, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Luke chapter 24, verse 12. Quote, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. John chapter 20, verse 3 and verses 10 to 11. Disciples came and went, but Mary stayed. This defines Mary's character in the spiritual realm as well as the physical. She is the one who remains. Her vigil with the Lord is total. I suspect she remained at the tomb for the full 72 hours, and she is the disciple chosen to witness his rebirth. This extends to a spiritual principle. Jesus reveals himself to the one who stays, more so than to those who come and go. In this sense, Mary is shown to be spiritually superior to even Peter and John, themselves superior apostles of the Twelve. There is a body of thought among analysts and expositors which declares Mary to be the equal of the Twelve male apostles, occasionally even erroneously named as one of them. The irony is that these misguided efforts to honor Mary end up selling her short. The Bible doesn't equate Mary with the twelve apostles. It testifies to the supremacy of her response to Jesus above theirs. Quote, Jesus asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. John chapter 20, verses 15 and 16. Jesus explained his father's plan for humanity to the twelve, which pivots on the fulcrum hope of resurrection. But they still didn't fully believe or understand. To Mary, Jesus speaks a single word, her name. With that one word, she understands everything. Teacher of teachers, she cries. The disciple of disciples recognizes the teacher of teachers. The perfect symmetry. Let's revisit Mary's name. Fascinatingly, when Mary is alone with Jesus after the resurrection, she is once again referred to as Mary Magdalene. This suggests Mary Magdalene is her real identity. This is not some uncharitable reference to her prostitution in Galilee. Magdala is where she was transformed. It's in Magdala that the disciple Mary was forged. 
partly from her frontline trials in the desperation of the impoverished human condition, but mostly through her burning desire to know God, whom she saw in Jesus. She alone internalized the gospel message to a level which ignited her equally unparalleled response. Thus, Magdala is a great place of victory for Mary, and Magdalene is the title scripture gives her as she stands with the Lord on that early Sunday morning at the tomb. Bethany was where she was born, but Magdala was where she was reborn, and that second birth holds the true essence of life. Bottom line, Mary of Bethany chose prostitution. Mary of Magdala chose Christ. That's why she's Mary Magdalene. Parting one more time, quote, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. As John 20, verse 17. This statement confuses many who believe, bizarrely, that if Mary touches Jesus physically, she will inflict some impurity upon him that will make him unable to ascend to God's presence. The idea has no foundation in either scripture or science, but it's widespread enough to be worth addressing. Consider, even when Jesus was mortal, his possession of the Holy Spirit rendered him more powerful than any diseases he encountered. When he touched a leper, not only did Jesus not contract leprosy, the leper contracted Jesus' health and was cured. After his resurrection, Jesus is immeasurably more powerful in his immortal state than in his mortal one. Thus, the idea that the immortal Jesus could be damaged dirtied or incapacitated by mortal touch, is simply foolish. What Jesus is saying is, don't get attached to me. Mary had lost Jesus when he died. Now even his body is missing, which is why she asks the man she thinks is the gardener where the body is gone. Suddenly, she explodes in joy. Her Lord is back. It's reasonable for her to suppose he's back permanently. That's why Jesus explains that, even though he's raised, he's not staying. He's en route to the Father. Thus he says, do not cling to me. Mary should not get attached to him. Apostle to the Apostles A final prestigious honor is bestowed on Mary. Jesus appoints her to testify to the Apostles that he has risen. Quote, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. John 20, verse 17. Consider the importance. The twelve apostles, who should be the spiritually closest to Jesus, have failed to determine why the tomb is empty. Mary has been tasked to teach the twelve men the truth. Her testimony was not well received. Quote, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Yet again, the men aren't listening. They're still trapped inside the paradigms of what they think they know, and the resurrection concept doesn't fit. So they discard Mary's witness. As a consequence, Mary Magdalene is the sole bearer of the gospel message. Mary will steward metaphorically gestate the gospel truth until such time as the men are capable of hearing it. She is the only one who believes the gospel. She forms the narrow bridge from Messiah's ministry 
the establishment of the early church. In a manner akin to an Olympic torchbearer, she alone holds the tiny gospel flame aloft. Mary Magdalene is truly first among apostles. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this article by John Popel. For more, you can visit pressonjournal.org.